We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznaf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast that focuses on the intersection between Judaism, our Jewish ethics and values, and pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Mike, what are we talking about today? Oh, man. We, there has been so much happening uh, in our world um, that it's just impossible to uh, cover in a uh, twice a month podcast. Where there's, there's pop culture always happening. Uh, we have been in the throes of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic for four months now, something like that. Uh, and, uh, and, and now in the midst of a, a, a national reckoning, uh, an upheaval, a revolution maybe, uh, of, um, uh, of, uh, of racial justice. Um, and so there's just so much in the ether, so much happening, so much going on in pop culture. We thought we would take this opportunity um, to catch up a little bit, to catch up with each other, to catch up with you, uh, and talk a little bit about uh, a couple of things that we've been uh, thinking about and enjoying over the past uh, several weeks that we haven't had a chance to cover yet uh, in uh, a Pop Torah podcast. So these are things that maybe both of us have seen and uh, watched or uh, listened to, uh, and maybe not. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna find out. We're gonna do this live. This is Pop Puri. This is a grab bag. Jesse, you like that Pop Puri? We'll, we'll cut that out. That we'll cut that out. <laughs> leave it in. Um, you can cut it out, but I'm gonna make it the title of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let's, let's maybe, uh, maybe Jesse, maybe you can get us, uh, get us started. What have you been enjoying, um, and thinking about, uh, over these past few months? Sure. Most recently I've been, uh, watching, uh, two, uh, Hulu shows. Uh, the first, um, I binged watched, uh, the first and currently only season, uh, of Little Fires Everywhere, uh, Little Fires Everywhere, um, based on the novel of the same name, is a uh, story that focuses on Reese Witherspoon's character, Elena Richardson, and Carrie Washington's character of Mia Warren uh, in the town of Shaker Heights, Ohio. Shaker Heights is a suburb of Cleveland that really prides itself on uh, being a racially integrated community. Um, and... Uh, Reese Witherspoon's character sees Carrie Washington's character, uh, Mia, and uh, her daughter, um, Pearl. And when she sees them looking like they're living in their car, rents um, their rental property to them at below cost because she feels bad, wants to get them into the community, ends up hiring Carrie Washington um, to be um, almost like a a maid to help her out cooking dinners, cleaning the house, that sort of thing in their home. Um, and this story taking place in the late nineties, uh, we see a lot of underlying um, biases 
that that go on um, in a town that prides itself on being racially integrated. The eldest child's uh, the daughter of uh, Elena and Bill. She has a black boyfriend, and yet she is doing things that are beyond racist, but she thinks she could get away with them uh, because she has a black boyfriend. Um, she has a token black friend, Pearl, and thinks she could take advantage of her, um, not really realizing what they, in fact, are doing is racist. I wonder if it would be tolerated in the same way now. I think the story taking place about 20 plus years ago makes sense uh, because uh, we tolerated way too much. Uh, right prior to the Black Lives Matter movements, uh, prior to this movement where we don't just focus on being not racist, but really teaching ourselves and our communities and our children to be anti-racist. Uh, it's a community a, that they feel like they have to swallow and accept the racism that um, comes towards them. Uh, but I, I also, for me, it really focuses on the idea of microaggression, focusing on the idea of these unconscious biases uh, that we all have. And unless we confront those, right, we could say that we stand for something all that we want, but unless we confront those and unless we're called out for them and call out each other for them, we really won't change our own actions and we won't have the power to change society at all. The story um, uh, goes back and forth and, and it's clear that um, Mia and Pearl are on the run, constantly going from place to place. Uh, you don't really know what their backstory is. They claim it's because she's an artist. Turns out, big spoiler alert here, it's because uh, Carrie Washington's character was actually um, the surrogate for a wealthy couple uh, in Manhattan. And uh, she felt so attached to this child especially after her brother, who was her best friend, suddenly passed away. Uh, she ran to Los Angeles and delivered the child there, changed her last name so this couple could not find her, um, and uh, raised this child as her own because it was certainly biologically hers, even though it, she had made a prior legal arrangement to be a surrogate for this other couple. Um, it also deals a lot with homophobia as the youngest child uh, who's just entering high school is gay uh, and she um, had a girlfriend, but you're due to pure pressure in high school. The girlfriend chooses to stay closeted and uh, really sling homophobic slurs and comments her way. It causes another spoiler alert, the youngest daughter to... Um, run away from home. Uh, and uh, what we find in the story itself is really all these children feel this pressure to be perfect. Uh, and they end up burning their house down. Uh, they feel this pressure to um, be held to a certain standard. It's the sort of white waspy, white privilege standard and expect a certain lifestyle. Um, and they're willing to 
take advantage to others and put others down in order to get their way. I think it's really a statement, and certainly of what was acceptable at the turn of the century. Um, arguably, what some believe should still be acceptable now, um, but uh, it was a powerful story, and an uncomfortable story, a lot of tension. Kerry Washington was great. Weiss Witherspoon was great. And of course, my boy, Pacey Witter, Joshua Jackson, uh, was in it as well. Mike, what have you been watching? Yeah, so I'll stay uh, in the same vein, I suppose, uh, and um, and say that that my uh, that Adira and I, my wife and I, just uh, watched. Finally, were able to watch the uh, 2019 film Just Mercy. Um, Just Mercy uh, is the uh, a film based on the book by the same name uh, by Brian Stevenson. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it stars Michael B. Jordan um, as Brian Stevenson. So uh, Just Mercy is really kind of a, a memoir reflection of Brian Stevenson, who founded uh, an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative uh, that, uh, that, that works to um, uh, 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 exonerate uh, uh, death row uh, inmates, overturn death row convictions, um, when cases have been plagued by uh, uh, racial bias and, and, and inequity in the system, focusing on cases in the South. Uh, and, um, and the first thing I, I want to say is, I know it's probably not likely to happen, but if there's ever a movie made about my life, um, I want to put in a plug that maybe Michael B. B. Jordan plays me. I think that he's the, the right person to, to do it. I think that in my life, um, people have come up to me on the street and said, are you Michael B. Jordan? I say, no, I'm not, I'm not. But we get confused all the time. So, yeah, we're going um, to cut this out too. <laughs> um, but, uh, but in all seriousness, uh, you know, Just Mercy is, is really extraordinary uh, book and, and the movie um, it, you know, really does it justice, I think, not a pun I guess intended. Uh, so it follows, the, the book chronicles a number of stories that, uh, that, Stevenson worked on over the course of, of his career. Uh, and uh, the movie really focuses on, on, on one uh, fundamental, one central case uh, that's, that's also very present in, in the book. Um, it's the true story of a man named Walter McMillan, uh, who uh, was uh, uh, convicted of uh, murdering a, a young white woman in Alabama. Played by Jamie uh, Foxx in the movie. Played by Jamie Foxx in the movie, thank you. Um, and great performance by Jamie Foxx, great performance by Michael B. Jordan. Uh, and, you know, I think what, what, the move, what the book and then the movie really uh, highlights um, is, you know, what we're, what we're now, uh, you know, uh, reckoning with in, in, our, uh, in our country is, um, uh, you know, are the, are the myriad ways in which um, to be a black or brown person in, in America, um, even in 20th and not 21st century America, um, is to uh, uh, fight against um, tremendous uh, uh, racial, uh, uh, racist headwinds um, within policing, within the justice system, um, uh, within the economy. Uh, and, and, and you really see that play out um, in, in significant ways, right? You see um, the preponderance of these death row inmates that are that are African American, um, that um, uh, you know that uh, uh, that that the system uh, failed, um, or or maybe you put it a different way that the system was designed um, to uh, to fail them um, and uh, to uh, to to 
you know, incarcerate uh, uh, black bodies, to control black bodies, um, and uh, and then ultimately to uh, to to kill black people. Um, uh, the the movie there's this really haunting image, you know, I'll never forget it, uh, where Stevenson is driving M Michael B. Jordan's Stevenson is driving um, into uh, the uh, uh, the the prison to visit Walter McMillan, uh, and as he's driving in, he sees the chain gang, the prisoners um, outside the prison, um, uh, essentially um, you know picking cotton, right, harvesting uh, crops with a with a, a prison guard on horseback, um, uh, monitoring them, and you know you've seen that image before, you know in in um, uh, in 12 Years a Slave and, you know, in other depictions of, um, of, of American uh, slavery, um, you've seen that scene, but you've never seen it, I think, on screen or, or you've rarely seen it on screen um, uh, set in 20, the 20th century um, in uh, depicting real life, right? So, um, so the, the movie is, is making a very vivid case and a subtle one, but a vivid case that the mass, the system of mass incarceration, um, the the the, the uh, system of capital punishment in in America, in particular, um, are uh, like Michelle Alexander calls it, the new Jim Crow. Um, right, and it speaks uh, it, to if I could just jump in. Right, it speaks to yeah, the challenge uh, as Ava DuVernay uh, talks about in her documentary Thirteenth. Thirteenth, uh, right. The challenge of the Thirteenth Amendments, which was actually a negotiation that Lincoln had made in order to get it passed, was that uh, the Thirteenth right, Amendment, except for by right, abolishes for, uh, slavery, crime, right. right, except for punishment for crime, and we see right this rise in the criminal justice system post slavery. Um, was a way to uh, help these Southern racist whites who no longer had slaves to work on their plantations uh, still have free labor. Um, it was, right, that, that's when the prisons developed, that's right. when police forces really developed formally in this country. Right. Right, um, and so we're, we're really grappling uh, with that now in a, in a, in a serious and honest way, which is uh, partially why uh, the uh, um, uh, uh, Warner Brothers um, enabled Just Mercy to be uh, streamed and, and watched for free at right now. Um, one, because it came out um, at the end of December, you know, it, it was sort of out in theaters um, just before the pandemic hit, but probably not long enough to, to really catch fire. Um, and, uh, and so this is a way to, uh, to, to ensure that people see it, but it's a really important film to be watching right now, because as you say, Jesse, uh, it, you know, it, it really, um, uh, connects the dots, um, uh, it, uh, in, in a similar way that, uh, Ava DuVernay's 13th does. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and, um, and, and in addition to that, you know, um, there, there has been a lot, thankfully, uh, written, uh, lately, about um, uh, in, in fact, uh, the, the na her name escapes me. I'll find it in a second. Um, but the um, the journalist who was responsible for the 1619 project in New York Times Man Magazine just came out with a, a piece uh, for the same magazine, uh, saying uh, entitled "What America Owes uh, Black People" or "What We Owe Black People," uh, and you know, in talking about um, how we need to have a, a, a serious reckoning. 
um, with uh, reparations in, in some way, shape, or form because, and I see this um, all the time here in, in uh, where I live in Richmond, Virginia, um, like you said, right? Um, you know, so the, the, there, was, there was an attempt at um, reconstruction uh, after the Civil War that, that, uh, uh, that one, um, provided some form of uh, monetary reparations uh, for, uh, for formerly enslaved people. Um, and two, um, that instituted some version of multiracial democracy uh, in, in the South for the first time. Um, and, and very quickly, partially because of Lincoln's assassination and then the, the chain of events that unfolded after that. Uh, but um, uh, but uh, the, the, the um, monetary compensation to formerly enslaved people ended very quickly. Um, and, uh, uh, and so in addition to... Um, having a criminal justice system put up that would um, perpetuate um, enslavement, you know, under, under other means by, by other names. Um, you, uh, uh, you then also had um, the, the um, stripping away of the franchise for African-Americans, the institution of Jim Crow, uh, the, the rise of um, racialized terror against African-American communities. Um, and so, so Just Mercy is, I think, a, a, a piece of this puzzle that says, that says um, you know, uh, we as a country um, have never really um, uh, reconciled the, the historic injustice that, we, uh, that, that our ancestors uh, perpetrated against um, African-Americans for, uh, for hundreds of years. Um, and in many ways, um, just uh, perpetuated it and papered over it um, in, in such a way that that compounded the interest. Um, and so, you know, um, like Malcolm X said, right, the chickens are home to roost uh, now. Um, and it's why I think something like Just Mercy was, was so moving and, and so powerful and so important. And, you know, if once, God willing, soon, this pandemic uh, subsides and we're able to return to some sense of normalcy, one of the things that the Equal Justice Initiative and Brian Stevenson really worked hard to make a reality, uh, which opened two years ago in Montgomery, was uh, the National Lynching Memorial, uh, which, right. you know, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Um, it's a memorial to commemorate the victims of lynching in the United States. I really, uh, I have not been, I've had family members that have been, uh, but from what I've been told, um, really powerful uh, memorial along with their museum that they have here, their legacy museum from enslavement to mass incarceration. And so for those who uh, ever uh, go on one of these uh, civil rights trips, uh, shout out to our friend Billy Planner who, who, um, who, who does them with Eckar 36. Um, but uh, th this is definitely a stop that you have to take uh, to experience all the important work that the EJI uh, and Brian Stevenson has done throughout his career. Uh, and, you know, if you're going to watch another Brian, uh, Michael B. Jordan film also about this issue, just a shout out to Fruitvale Station. I don't know if you've seen it, um, but it focuses Fruitvale Station. Uh, really uh, is uh, an experience and a story day in the life of uh, police brutality. Um, and it's just, 24 hours in the life of Oscar Grant, who was killed by a BART police officer um, about 11 years ago in San Francisco. Um, and another powerful performance by Michael B. Jordan. Yeah. 
uh, one of the one of the most indispensable young actors of, of our time, I think, um, and, and um, really putting in really powerful performances uh, like this one. Um, what else? What else have we been? And I know that the story is really not about her, but I also got to give a shout out to my girl, Captain Marvel, Brie Larson, <laughs> who has a role in it as well. Um, what else have I been watching? I've also been watching the new um, Hulu series, FX. Uh, it has a really interesting relationship with Hulu now, now that uh, Disney has a, a majority stake in Hulu and Disney bought Fox. So FX is owned by Disney. Uh, it's now FX on Hulu. All of the FX shows are now on Hulu, but there's also a original content, the FX quality of really pushing the agenda as far as TV, MA, but only re being released on Hulu. Uh, and what I've been watching the past couple months is Mrs. America, which uh, tells the story of the fights uh, and the movement to pass the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, I have to say, and this is really because of my age, and maybe this is uh, me being part of the patriarchy, part of the problem, that uh, I wasn't really aware of the story of Phyllis Schlafly and, and her movement of these Midwestern housewives uh, who led a pushback and a backlash against the ERA. Uh, and fascinating to me, the way we see these women who, who I've you know, been taught are, are amazing uh, revolutionaries, Gloria Steinem, um, who I've had the, the privilege of hearing speak before. I met my, my brother at his synagogue in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, uh, brought her to speak. Uh, Betty Friedan, Shirley Chisholm, uh, the, the first uh, black woman to serve in Congress and the first woman to run for the president of the United States. You have them fighting for women's rights and equal rights. And then you have Phyllis Schlafly, these housewives who are pushing back on it. Uh, and a really fascinating... Um, back and forth uh, and, and you see that um, the women, including Schlafly herself, are sort of swallowing their pride at several times, that they feel that they are put down by men, put down by their husbands often, uh, but they feel like that this is their role. Um, and so they, uh, they push back on it. Um, another shout out really also to Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden, um, who serve as executive producers of the series. They, of course, are the, um, the co-directors, uh, Anna Bowden being the first female director of the MCU of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They were the co-directors of Captain Marvel. Uh, Mike, have you seen Mrs. America at all? Uh, you know, I haven't, unfortunately. I um... Uh, no longer have Hulu, so um, so maybe I'll use you know um, maybe I'll uh, borrow a passcode and, and get to see it. I, I've been I've been I'd offer mine, but it. I'm already borrowing somebody's passcode. Um, no, I've been I've been I've been following the the show, you know, like in 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 sort of the cultural conversation, and and then know a little bit of the history of it. Um, and it and it sounds like it, it's it's a it, it's a really powerful. Uh, take um, are are there are there takeaways that you that you take you know from it? you know it's it's really interesting. Um, I watched it. I appreciate it also from a historical perspective, as as uh, disturbing as many points were. Um, my wife uh, really had trouble watching it um, because you know, and and her, and that's sort of the difference. And me really working hard to not. Uh, mansplain things to people and, and working hard to um, 
raise up women's voices and learn from them and their experience. You know, in her words, she's like, this is the same bullshit that we're still dealing with uh, in the year 2020. Um, that, you know, fighting for equal pay, um, fighting for uh, maternity leave um, and parental leave, or not having to explain ourselves why uh, arguably the most qualified candidate ever to run for president lost to a, a demagogue um, lunatic. An incompetent racist. That's another term as well. Uh, because there was misogyny very much playing out in that election. Um, and uh, I, I understand and appreciate that, that um, right, that's, that's a fight that um, we all need to be a part of, um, even though, right, I have privilege as a, right, we talk about privilege a lot in all these shows, uh, as a cisgender, straight, white male, um, there's so much privilege and the question is, what do I do with that privilege? Um, so the takeaway that I've really come out with is really um, that this is an ongoing fight and uh, it's a fight that we're still fighting today. You know, ironically, um, Schlafly, who wanted a role in, in the Reagan White House and the Reagan administration, was never hired because uh, she was told she was too polarizing a figure. Um, and all we see in politics right now is that polarization. And we try to um, be okay with that, right? We, we, we try to say we've got to bring people together, but maybe we just live in a polarizing society and, and right, you either stand for what we believe or, or, or you don't. On, both sides of the aisle, um, there's certain issues where I'm not sure there's room for a middle ground, right? And, and when we talk about women's right, when we talk about egalitarianism, when we talk about equality, um, listen, this is even talking about a gender binary system, which is very different language in the 70s from what we're talking about today, uh, when we understand the spectrum of gender. Uh, but polarization exists in every 24-hour news network we watch with every presidential candidate and every, let's say, elected official, that's the reality that we're living in, as disturbing as it is, and we see the initial beginnings of that in this story. Well, right, and I think that, you know, you, you raise a really, really good point there. You know, we, we talk about polarization as if it is a self-evidently bad thing. Um, and, you know, Ezra Klein uh, just came out with a, well, not just, but a, a, a number of months ago came out with a really great book called uh, Why We're So Polarized, um, in which he actually makes, um, you know, I mean, there's some elements of polarization that, that uh, he obviously thinks are bad. I mean, it, it disables us from, from you know, solving um, a lot of uh, problems, but there are ways in which it's actually uh, positive, right? The, the, the period of American history in which the parties weren't polarized uh, or weren't as polarized. Um, one of the reasons for it is that they, you know, is that they were, that, that both of the major parties, you know, uh, essentially had an agreement that they weren't going to deal with, with racial justice, racial inequality, right? So they were, so they were not polarized um, uh, because, uh, because they weren't dealing with the most polarizing uh, issue in, in the country and they both had, uh, you know, a sort of agreement that they weren't going to be multi multiracial uh, coalitions. 
right? So, um, so there, so there's a way in which our polarization um, is actually really good for democracy. Um, it would be better, obviously, if we had, you know, um, two, uh, uh, you know, multiracial, you know, coalition parties um, that were, you know, that, that both essentially agreed that we should be a, a multiracial, multiethnic democracy, um, and and then, you know, disagree on some of the details of that. Right? We don't, we don't have that. Um, uh, but but it is clarifying, I think, to know that on one side of the political divide, we have uh, essentially white identity politics um, and the, the politics of white grievance. Uh, and on the other side of the political divide, we have, um, we have that actually internal debate and conversation about the details of how to best be a multiracial democracy. So like, you know, so it's, it's, it's challenging and, and, and frustrating to kind of uh, break through because we, we are conditioned to uh, live in a world in which, you know, you got to be fair and balanced, right? You have to sort of like give equal credibility to the arguments on both sides. Um, but that doesn't work so well within a system uh, in which uh, one of the sides um, is, you know, um, uh, uh, routinely uh, benefiting uh, and, and advancing an exploitative uh, and, and oppressive agenda and doesn't agree in, on the, you know, on the, on the fundamental equality of, of, uh, of, of all people. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, uh, it, it also creates a situation in which um, the worst among us uh, benefit from the, from the, from the um, best intentions that we have, which is the best intentions that we have is to be fair, right? And to, um, you know, to, uh, to, to, to see the value in, in all arguments, right? But there, I think, is not enough recognition that there are some arguments that don't deserve um, an equal um, footing in the marketplace of ideas. You know, that's, that's we, you know, we, since this is a Torah podcast, um, in, in thinking about that, Right, you know, we often talk about the the Jewish culture of like debate and and disagreement, um, but I, I think that you know within that uh, you have uh, the, the the good faith within the his the the legacy of Jewish debate is that you know there are some shared values and shared assumptions that that you know um, that the disputants in the Talmud um, have uh, not always. Um, but but I think that you know the, the ability to, um, to to hold the plur the pluralism of the Talmud um, is not an anything goes pluralism. Um, it's not that all opinions are equally valid kind of pluralism, right? Is that within a frame within a certain framework, some opinions are equally valid um, that may be in opposition to one another. Yeah, you know, we often forget when we talk about Elu Ve'elu Divrei Elohim Chaim, right, the, this, this famous teaching of Hillel and Shammai who always disagreed and were taught that, they're, uh, that these words and these words are the words of the whole, you know, you know, living God. Um, but guess what? The Torah still sides with Hillel. It says, but we, I mean, the Talmud does, but it says, right, these words are valid and these words are valid. The debate is valid, but ultimately we side with, with, with this. It's not that both are right. And, and I understand the Torah is subjective, but ultimately we have to decide that somebody who has a view, right? We, we've talked about building a big tent and there's room for everybody, but somebody who has a view that we believe is antithetical to the values that we stand for, there's no room in our tents, right? That view is just wrong. 
if we are an egalitarian Jewish community and that is an essential value, then anything that pushes back on that is wrong. If we are a Jewish community that supports that everybody is made in God's image, then any view that is homophobic and uh, simply even those views that just condone the LGBTQ plus community rather than celebrates it is wrong, right? Views that, uh, which is certainly problematic within the Jewish community, that um, focus on that subconscious bias uh, and, and racism that exists among many in the Jewish community, that's wrong. And, and we have to call it out. And it's not that those words too are words of the living God. It's that we don't have room in our tent for that. Right. And, and um, I'm glad you brought up that story from this Talmud. One of my favorite aspects of that story is, you know, there's this sort of like, in, you know, when, when the divine voice comes out that says, you know, these and these are the words of the living God, but the law is in accordance with the school of Hillel. And the um, anonymous voice of the Talmud, you know, objects saying, wait a minute, if both of them are the words of the living God, then why does the law follow Hillel? Like if they're equally valid. And the answer is because um, the, the school of Hillel practiced kindness and modesty, um, and they would uh, teach the views of Shammai before they would teach their own views, right? In other words, the, the, the determinant of normativity, like the, the way we determine like which school to follow um, is, is their, is, is their um, empathy, is their compassion, is their kindness, right? The, so we, um, uh, um, so we, you know the the values that are that are present within our system is you know that that um you know pluralism is important um normativity actually might be more important than that like we need to know which way to go and but the way we determine how to go um is based on um the uh the the, the inclusion um and the love and the commitment to justice of the um of the of the positions being offered right whichever one is in is a greater is, is is coming from more of a place of inclusivity more of a place of kindness more of a commitment to justice that's the direction we ought to go that's the direction we ought to follow absolutely mike any last things that you've been watching yeah you know it's it's uh, uh in, in in a similar vein but uh but a, but a totally different kind of art. Um, I've been watching the most recent series of, uh, most recent season of Queer Eye on Netflix. Um, this is uh, a reboot of um, uh, the, the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy um, that, uh, that, that swept the culture uh, in the early 2000s. I think it was on Bravo, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. And um, Yep. And uh, so now there's a, a new Fab Five. They, they call it Queer Eye now. Uh, because uh, many of the um, uh, subjects of the show um, are, 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 not, uh, are, are not men. They, they um, uh, have uh, worked with uh, men, women, um, uh, people who are non-binary, um, trans people. Uh, so um, uh, so it's, a, it's a more expansive and a more inclusive, honestly, uh, version of Queer Eye. Um, with, um, with, with, within a lot of ways, a lot more heart um, and a lot more soul. The, the, the old Queer Eye was, was sort of a lot more quippy um, and a lot more, um, uh, um, you know, a lot more exploitative in, in some ways of both the, um, 
gay community um, and the um, and the subjects that they were uh, working with um, and uh, uh, the, the, you know obviously the, there's been a, a lot of uh, interesting debate about that original queer eye and the legacy it has and and the, the um, um, both the roles it played positively and negatively um, in the uh, in, in in advancing um, uh, LGBT equality uh, but uh, but but the new queer eye is um, is just um, it's sort of like delicious candy. Um, it's it's just it's it's first of all it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully edited. Um, the the uh, the Fab Five are um, just all of them in in their own unique ways. Uh, really really delightful to to watch. Um, with you know uh, a, a fundamental message uh, that I think is really great and really powerful for this time. It's it's honestly uh, obviously it was all filmed before the pandemic. So there's um, a lot of physical contact in the show, which is very jarring to see. Uh, but um, uh, but the, the love that's present in the show, the message of, uh, of self-love and self-acceptance um, is, is so important. Um, the, uh, the, the, the notion that, um, uh, which is actually very Jewish, I think, right? We, we learn from uh, Hillel and the Mishnah, um, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me, right? But if I'm only for myself, what am I? Right? So um, a lot of times the show deals with people who live very much in that second category, which is if I'm only for myself, what am I? So these are people who like are devoting their lives to their family, to their community. Um, just, just really powerful stories, moving stories of, of, of just really extraordinary people who, um, who have ignored the first part of what Hillel said, right? Which is that you also have to be for yourself because if you're not for yourself, then who's gonna, who's gonna be for you? So one of the things that the, um, that the Fab Five are, are trying to, that one of the gospels that they're trying to um, evangelize um, to, to folks that they're working with and to the viewing audience um, is uh, that, um, that you really can't be present for others unless you are also present for yourself. Um, that's something that's that's really important and, and pressing, you know. In in, in this moment, we, we talked to April Baskin uh, in our last episode. She uh, one of the things I, I most remember her teaching us, uh, um, both during the conversation we had with her and, and in other opportunities we've had to learn with her, um, is that um, is that ideally, you know, your activism, your service to the community, your service of others, should come from your overflow, right? Should be your kosi revaya, right? The overflow of your cup. Uh, and um, and uh, so that means that you also have to have focus on, um, on on caring for yourself and tending to yourself and nourishing yourself and supporting yourself. Because if you're empty, um, you might temporarily be a benefit to other people, um, but you won't have the ability to engage in the work long haul. You'll, you know, uh, burn out and, and maybe even, you know, get sick and God forbid other worse things. So what the, what, what this queer eye is, is trying to show is, is the, the, the um, importance, um, the, the, the spiritual importance uh, of, of caring for yourself um, as a, a parallel um, uh, track or as a, as, as a necessary counterweight to the service that you do uh, for other people, right? Loving yourself is a piece of loving others. We have that in the Torah, right? Uh, uh, right? Well, you can't really 
ohev et arecha, right? You can't really love your neighbor unless right. you love yourself in that formulation. Right. Um, so that, that's one of the things that I, that I just love about this iteration of, of Queer Eye. I don't know if you have been following the Fab Five or you're a noob, but- No, um, I haven't like, watched it, but, watch. but I have to say, you know, I appreciate these conversations, especially because uh, I'm kind of getting nervous as this pandemic continues and um, the uh, film and television industry is grinded to a halt. Um, not only have s- some of the movies that I've had marked on my calendar for months, uh, we've passed those those dates and they've never come out and they're getting pushed back months. Hopefully by the fall, they'll come out. Um, like Black Widow, my girl Scarlett Johansson, the latest uh, of the MCU, um, right? That was supposed to come out in May. It's not coming out till November now. If it does come out in November. It, if there's a movie... If there's a movie about your life, Jesse, I wish for you that Scarlett Johansson plays you. I, I appreciate that. Um, I wish I could be as athletic as, as she is um, and fight like her. Um, that, that being said, uh, you know, I, I'm running out of things to watch, I worry. So I'm glad uh, now that you're giving me these recommendations, I will binge all seasons of the Queer Eye reboot. Just have your Kleenex handy. There's a lot of I'm not crying, you're crying moments in there. Um, so, you know, be, be fairly warned. And uh, stay tuned, uh, friends of the pod, because coming out this weekend, dropping this weekend on Disney Plus, which we will focus on our next episode, hashtag Hamill film, Hamilton, the Broadway musical films and uh, dropping on Disney Plus with the original cast. This was filmed Actually, I believe four years ago, uh, the last, uh, a couple of weeks before the uh, uh, Pippa Sue, who was the first of the original Broadway cast to leave the show and move on, uh, filmed before she left and when the entire original Broadway cast is still together. I've seen it on Broadway. Can't wait to see it uh, on Disney Plus, which I will watch about 12 times this weekend. So I, and I am a Hamilton neophyte. I've listened to the music once or twice, but I have never seen the show. Um, so I will be entering into the, uh, uh, the, the film version and the conversation with, the, with a fresh set of eyes. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. All right, great. So our next episode, maybe we can uh, talk about it via rap battle. <laughs> I'm sure I will not win. <laughs> well, until next time, uh, I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. I'm Rabbi Michael Nah. Stay safe, everyone. Stay healthy and enjoy uh, what you're watching.